Well, we've come to the center of the book of Mark. There are 16 chapters, and here we are at the end of chapter 8. So, textually, we are in the middle of the book. And it's no surprise, then, that at this, the center of the book, we come to the theological center of the book. Everything up to this has been geared towards helping us address the question, who is Jesus? And then, everything going forward from here seeks to address the question, what does it mean for Jesus to be the Christ? Right here at the heart of the book, we are challenged to give an account. Who is Jesus? But then, Jesus being Jesus, he ups the ante. It's not sufficient simply to correctly identify his name. It's not sufficient simply to get him right. We must identify with him correctly. And then indeed, we must follow him completely. This passage reveals that Jesus expects that true confession of who he is follows in a response of discipleship. You can't rightly know who Jesus is without responding. That's not an option. So, we start this morning by looking at the question of Jesus. The question of Jesus. Who is he? If you look, it says he's walking with his disciples in the region of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi uh, was named, it was, it was a rather ingenious attempt for Philip Herod uh, to gain fame for himself and at the same time give a, a nod, a tip of the hat to his Roman overlords. So he named the town sort of after himself, but at the same time for Caesar. Right? Smart move. Name it after yourself and for Caesar. This is Philip's Caesarea. This is Philip's town in honor of Caesar. <laughs> it's just north and northeast of the Sea of Galilee. It's, it was the administrative center for Herod's kingdom. And Jesus is not in the city itself per se. He's kind of out in the suburbs. He's in the villages of Caesarea Philippi. So he's, he's like he's out in the burbs, okay? And he's walking with his disciples. And he says, who do people say that I am? He wants to know... What's the word on the street? What's the scuttlebutt? Okay? What is everyone saying? And they answer, John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. Notice that everyone says something great. The word on the street is that he is a mighty man of God. But that's not sufficient. I'm not so much interested in what other people say. You guys, as I've repeatedly told you, have been granted a special privilege to have an inside look at the early nascent stages of the development of the kingdom of God. You, you had a privileged position. So what do, you, what do you say? Who do you say I am? And the Greek is really emphatic. In fact, if you have the Holman Christian Standard Bible or a few other versions, they get it a little more precise because... He uses the second person pronoun twice 
in Greek. It's you. What do you say? He's very emphatic. Who do you say that I am? And that same emphasis is there to this day. In life, there are many important questions. Think about it. Do you know why I pulled you over? Right? How much trouble you get in depends on how you answer that question. Some questions lay on us a great burden. Do you take this oath freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion? Some questions, the way you answer it, it changes your life. Will you marry me? This question, above all other questions, is the most profound, the most significant question you will ever, ever, ever be faced with. Who do you say that Jesus is? He calls to you. And he points his finger at you. Who do you say that I am? You cannot avoid it. You cannot hem and haw your way out of it. You can't barter for time. You can't negotiate your way out of it. You can only answer him. And he looks at every single man and woman and boy and girl. And you must give an account Who do you say I am? And your very life, both now and forever, depends upon how you answer. Who do you say that I am? Now, boys and girls, do not delay Today is the day of salvation. You are not promised tonight. You are not promised to make it out these doors. You are not promised tomorrow. I guess I knew at some intellectual level that young people could just keel over and die, but I'd never believed, I'd never seen it until I became a chaplain in the course of a year. I had to conduct three funerals for people in the prime of their life who just went to bed and didn't wake up. You are not promised tomorrow. So don't foolishly think, I'm going to wait until I'm 70, till I'm 80, and then I'll look at Jesus and answer the question. You aren't promised to be 70 years old. You're promised now and only now. So who do you say that he is? Everything depends on it. Now in verse 29, Peter, being Peter, he answers, you're the Christ. Now most scholars believe that in this moment he was indeed acting as the spokesman for the twelve. So this wasn't just his personal opinion, it was the shared consensus. And he says, you are the Christ. Now for us, we, that just sort of rolls off the tongue, he's the Christ, okay. That was a highly charged political statement to be made. 
You are the one we have been waiting for for centuries. That's going to make everything right. That's going to throw off all of our oppressors. That's going to establish a theocratic nation state again. And all the wicked people will be driven from the land. And only the righteous will live here. And we will worship the Lord in spirit and in truth forever. Oh, we've been praying and longing for you because you are the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. That's what Peter thought. And of course, Jesus says, don't tell a soul. It says he strictly charged them. He didn't just say, it'll be better, guys, to keep that under wraps because there's a lot of misconceptions out there and, and we don't need a, you know, a, an uprising. He strictly charges them. It's that important to keep it under the wraps for the time being. But then, he goes on. Because he wants to challenge the nature of Peter's understanding of what it means for him to be the Christ. Because simply pointing out, you're the Christ, is not sufficient. How can you say that, Ben? How can you say that? Well, think about it for just a minute. If you take the words, you're the Christ... How is that really any different than the confession that the demons made? You're the Son of God. You're the Holy One of God. They identified Jesus correctly. Was that not correct? Getting Jesus right means more than answering correctly on a pop quiz. You can know someone's name without knowing the person. And Jesus wants us to understand that. So immediately he begins digging in. And he says he starts to explain what it means for him to be the Messiah. It says it very clearly in verse 30. In verse 30 it says, he be, or 31, he begins to teach them. Now please look at 31. Because here we bring together two of the concepts that were so revolutionary. It says that he begins by saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected and killed. Okay, he refers to himself as the Son of Man. He begins teaching that the Son of Man, this is Jesus' absolute favorite self-designator. In virtually all the Gospels, this is how Jesus almost always refers to himself, the Son of Man. And where we get that from is way back in the book of Daniel written during the exile. Daniel chapter 7 to be precise. And what we have there is Daniel has this vision of four beasts that represent four kingdoms. And these beasts are hideous and stuff and they get destroyed. But then in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 7 of Daniel, we read this. I saw in the night visions and behold... With the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Okay, that passage informed Jewish messianic hopes. 
It's a victorious passage, a glorious passage, a conquering passage. The Son of Man comes and he establishes righteousness and this is a kingdom that will never, oh, they love it. They can really sink their teeth into that one. The Son of Man must suffer many things. And there's nothing about suffering here. It's about glory and honor. But of course, we know that there are passages in the Bible where the servant of the Lord has to suffer. For example, famously, Isaiah 53. What does Isaiah 53 say? You know, he was despised and rejected by men. He was esteemed, stricken by us, smitten by God. He was afflicted. He was bruised, crushed for our iniquities. But yet at the time, no one put them together. Because don't they seem kind of contradictory? Someone who's glorious and victorious? Someone who's smitten and crushed? They don't go together. That's like oil and water. You don't win by losing. You don't lose by winning. Mutually exclusive ideas. Or so they thought. And indeed, it was there all the time. But they just didn't get it. Just as today, many don't get it. We love the vision of the Son of Man. Our lives are hard. They're full of hurts. They're full of disappointments. We want the picture of Christ victorious, reigning and and leading us in triumph. Oh, hallelujah. But Jesus came to suffer. And indeed, it's because he suffers that he gets the glory. But then, even more amazing is the fact that between those two concepts, you have the word must. Have you ever noticed that before? The Son of Man must suffer many things. Not will suffer. Not might suffer. Not should suffer. Must suffer. Now, if you have a Bible in your hands, I encourage you to underline that word and circle it. You want to know why? Because that must there is your salvation. That must is the cost and the worth of your salvation. The Son of Man gets the glory because He suffers for you. And that suffering was necessary. There was no other way around it. People talk about potential worlds, that God is the God of endless possibilities. Right? So God, in his, in his mind, can envision an infinite number of worlds where every single possibility takes place. Right? If there were such a possible world in which your salvation were possible without the Son of God taking on flesh and suffering, guess what? It would have happened. And his death would not have been necessary. There's no way for your debt of sin to be paid without the Son of God shedding his blood. That is why he came. That is his mission. And that is the cost of your salvation. But they didn't want to hear that. And so, of course, you know, Peter's like, oh, we're, we're writing a 
crest of, of the wave of popularity, Jesus. What are you talking about that you're going to be rejected and killed? Oh, that's, that's crazy. Don't talk that way. And then Jesus gives that stinging rebuke. Get behind me, Satan. Now, he's not saying that he's been possessed. Nor is he pronouncing an anathema upon him that he's lost forever. But he does want to drive home the point that when we set our perspective and our sight and our expectations on things that are simply worldly, they will never, ever, ever be elevated to what God is doing. And our perspective will always be short-sighted, myopic, and indeed cloudy. And as soon as you do that, you run the risk of being in opposition to the plan and purpose of God. And thus, you functionally act as an adversary of God. So he uses Satan to really drive it home. That that is in effect what we become when we oppose God's plan. You're thinking about things from an earthly perspective. Peter, there's something more, so much more. But you have to lift up your eyes to see it. So, he's telling Peter, look, it's not sufficient that you said you're the Christ. You have an errant understanding of who I am. You have to accept me and my mission you have to think about things from a heavenly perspective. Otherwise, your understanding of me is all wrong. So what it means then to comprehend Christ rightly is that we accept him as he is. And we stop trying to push and form Jesus into whatever mold it is that we think we have. And there are so many molds. I mean, you know, we have the 1960s John Lennon Jesus. All you need is love, love. Oh, okay. You have the Zig Ziglar Jesus. You're a winner. You can do it, champ. I'm on your side. There's the Che Guevara Jesus. The oppressed of the world unite. And of course, there's everybody's favorite, Genie Jesus. You know, <laughs> you ain't never had a friend like me, right? Life is your restaurant. Anyway. <laughs> but that's what people want to believe about Jesus. That he's there to just sort of meet your expectations. And he's not a wax nose. He's a person. And he has a mission. And we have to align ourselves with it. So, since he's the king, and since we have to rightly identify with him, we have to then recognize that the question of who Jesus is results in a call of Jesus for all who would follow him. And so, as I was preparing this message today, I said to myself, Self? There's a lot of information here. We're going to go ahead and stop there. And we're going to pick this up next week with the call of Jesus. 
But what I want to leave ringing in your ears is that you must, must, must answer the, the question, who do you say that I am? Your life depends on it. Let's pray.